Welcome and thanks for joining us another episode of Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to some of the leading minds in wealth management. I'm really excited about today's podcast that we've just recorded with John Hempton, the founder and chief investment officer of Bronte. John founded Bronte in 2009 after a career that was with the Australian Treasury and also Platinum Asset Management. John's a very well-known investor based on his performance with the Bronte Fund, which is at 14.7% and is currently closed to uh, new investment. But also via media, uh, he's very well known through his participation in uh, the Netflix series, Dirty Money, which is a fantastic series, which I, if anyone's interested in financial markets, uh, I think they'll find very interesting. John Stars is one of the handful of peoples who identified the fraud that was going on at Valiant Pharmaceuticals. Uh, He's also well known as managing some of Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's money, Um, but I think you'll agree that his insight into identifying business models and strategies that over a long amount of time can bear substantial returns is really second to none. Additionally, his methodology for identifying uh, short opportunities, that is opportunities to make money out of companies going down, makes this a unique opportunity in the international equity space to provide uh, investors return regardless of underlying market direction. I think you'll really enjoy this podcast. Please send me your feedback. You can get me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Remember to rate and share the podcast. We'd really appreciate that. Thanks a lot and enjoy the podcast. John, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks. Glad to be here. John, can you maybe start off by just giving us a little bit of your background and how you came to be the the CIO of of Bronte? Because I think that might go towards how you think. There are two parts to the background. I was lucky enough to work for two geniuses in my life. The first core bit was that I worked in tax policy at the Australian Treasury when Ken Henry was the head of tax policy. He was later secretary. And I became the expert on avoidance. And avoidance is the gnarliest way to accounting that you'll ever come across. In a typical avoidance case, there will be 500 pages of documents, a ship that travels between three countries, a plane that travels somewhere, four different structures. The gap income will be $100 million and the taxable income will be $1 million. And And you had to work out what was going on. And the best thing about this is that nobody would explain any of these documents to you. You actually had to sit down and work out what was going on. So this is how you developed your forensic accounting. This is where the accounting skill came from. It's just brutal trial by ordeal on accounting. And that sometimes what was going on was an avoidance scheme. Sometimes it was something completely different. In fact, a surprising amount of time, you'd see 100 million of gap income and 3 million of accounting, the taxable income, and it was the taxable income that was right. The gap income had been faked. And the Australian tax office would come to us with the document saying, there's a giant tax scheme here and we don't understand it. And I'd come back and say, no, there's a giant accounting fraud here and you don't understand it. <laughs> right? But it gave us a good feel to it. Along the way, I met an American woman who had inherited some money which was very badly managed. And I sat down and tried to think about how you would manage money. And I got fairly good at it as a sort of retail investor. 
And so I managed to convert that into a job and I became a partner at Platinum Asset Management. Mm -hmm. And Platinum is sort of an engineering approach to value investing. Care, care doesn't read accounts, but he does try to understand businesses. Bronte is essentially an attempt to put both those skills together. So we have enormous amounts of accounting skill, which we don't use as a default. We use it as needed and quite a lot of business analysis skill. But the approach here was two different parts of my, my career that were both great learning experiences and very diversified. Um, now, along the way, I, I learned that the real money is made by owning good businesses. Um, Warren Buffett could have told you this. Warren Buffett's the sort of champion of buy a business and hold it forever and seem to make an astonishing amount of money. Mm -hmm. And yet when I, when I was young, I'd buy these businesses and A, I could never hold them forever and B, if I held them forever, it didn't work out that well anyway. Mm -hmm. And it took me a lot of back working out to work out what it is that makes a good business and why you would want to hold it forever. Now, most of the people who are listening to this had a business that generated a lot of money and was in some sense a superior business but they may not have even worked out what it was that made it superior. But I'll run you through some models of good businesses. The very best model of a good business in the world is one that is developing global scale and will share the benefit of that scale with their clients. In that case, what you become is very, very big and very hard to compete with. And the iconic examples are Costco and Amazon. But in the context of Australia, you know, once upon a time, Woolworths had really, really good scale. And what it did with that scale was it undercut everybody. And if you owned a corner shop, you died. And Woolworths got better and better and better, and it was eventually a sort of 25 bagger stock. And even Coles, which was mismanaged, was sort of a three or four bagger stock. Mm -hmm. but, it's, but if you want to go better than that, um, Woolworths has a cost structure which is gross margins about 26%, 25%, net margins about 3 or 4 In other words, their operating cost is 20%. If you go have a look at Costco's structure, its gross margin is about 12% and its net margin is about 2%. So its operating costs are about 10 percentage points versus 20-something percentage points at Woolworths, which means that just as Woolworths rolled over, rolled over um, corner shops, Costco is rolling over the Woolworths of this world because it has 10 percentage points of cost advantage. And if you have a cost advantage like that that you can roll out over the whole world and undercut everybody, you will eventually become a, a giant business on thin margins but impossible to compete with. If you'd held Costco through its great run, you'd have made sort of 30 times your money or 40 times your money. If you'd held Amazon, which is even better, through its great run, I think you're up sort of seven or 800 times your money. And the number of times that I've managed to hold one of these perfect businesses for a long period of time is zero. Yeah. But I've got this sort of aspirational goal, which is, you know, the very best business in the world is one that develops global scale and will share the benefit of the scale with their customers. There are other models of good business. Um, it's a, re a really good business if you can sell people their identity or make them change the way that they think about themselves. 
Now, I'll give you the example. Nobody in the history of the world has cared what brand of frozen peas they eat. Right? And you can have a brand like White Wings, but that brand doesn't entitle you to a bet margin. Mm -hmm. But there are women aged 26 in Hong Kong who still live with their parents in a 650 square foot apartment, who have cumulative lifetime earnings of $50,000 and have spent 5,000 of that on a Louis Vuitton handbag. And if you think that that woman is buying a piece of leather, you've misinterpreted it. She's buying something that changes her perception of herself. And if you can sell people the perception of themselves, you can make ridiculous amounts of money doing it. Now, we don't do this very often because I'm not very cool. right? But, the mo but it shouldn't surprise you that the most profitable motorbike company in the world is Harley-Davidson. Mm -hmm. It's not that it makes the best bikes in the world, but it sure as hell is the one that people you know, changes people's perception of themselves. 30, a 45-year-old guy buys a Harley-Davidson and he thinks he's some kind of rebellious youth, but he's really just a washed-out investment banker. He'll pay a lot for that perception. Sure. Now, yeah. we've owned one of those in the fund, which is a company called Herbalife, which is actually a multi-level marketing scheme selling weight loss shakes. But the right way to think about it is Alcoholics Anonymous for fat people. People who join it, it becomes their lifestyle. Now, there's another model of good business. There are lots of models of good businesses. There's another, another model of a good business that we do all the time, and we do it all the time because we know how to recognize it, and there are lots of small examples. And this is what we call the trifecta. If your business does three things, it will make a lot of money. The three things are it wants to be a small but important part of the big process, that gives you a lot of pricing power because you can charge off the big process. It wants to have a high switching cost and it wants to be a consumable. Two out of three, you'll make good money. Three out of three, you make ridiculous amounts of money. Warren Buffett never says this, but he does it all the time. My favorite example is the cutting tools business. The cutting tools are little bits of ceramic tungsten mixers that go on the end of a lathe and spin very fast and cut metal. And if you go have a look at a Ford factory, they're cutting engine blocks. There are 42 holes in a standard four-cylinder engine. And that's done with a computer-programmed lathe. If I make a better cutting tool, I can make the whole factory run faster. If I can make the whole factory run faster, I can charge a lot of money for that. The second thing is if I change brand of cutting tool, I have to reprogram the computers. So there's a high switching cost. But if I change in brand, I generally don't have to reprogram the computers. The third thing is it's a consumable. Now, a consumable is good for two reasons. The first reason is people never shop consumables. Right? Never, ne never, never um, negotiate consumable prices. So when was the last time you negotiated the price of petrol? Uh, the price of a car. Well, when you negotiate the price of a car, you buy a car, you negotiate its price. When was the last time you negotiated the price of petrol? And the answer is never. You drive past the service station, you look at the price and you say yes or no. Mm -hmm. But you never go into the service station and say, yeah, I'll buy it if it's one cent a litre cheaper. Right? I mean, it's comical to think of that. If you have a fat margin consumable, people will wear it. If you have a fat margin capital item, they'll negotiate your price. So the first reason you want to be a consumable is that it changes the negotiation thing. The second reason you want to be a consumable is the profits never go away. 
profit in 2009 is worth more than profit now because you can do more with the cash. You can buy equities and they're really cheap. Now you can buy equities and they're not really cheap. Right? If you were selling capital items in 2009, all your sales went away. If you were selling consumables, you dropped 20%. And if you're selling consumables with a 40% margin, you're still fat margin. Right? So you want to be all three of those things in order to be a great business. Now, we look at that all the time. There are other models of good business. Network effects create great businesses. If something works only because everybody else is on it, it becomes very hard to compete. I mean, how would you set up a competitor to Facebook? Sure. The answer is you've got to somehow rather tease everybody off. The problem with net network effect businesses is when they collapse, they collapse totally. So kind of friends, binary. Yeah, Friendster. People move from Friendster to MySpace, and then they move from MySpace to Facebook. Facebook. Correct. So, so, John, that's all on the long side. And, of course, Bronte and, 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 and yourself is very much known, and I think you know the funders had a compound annual return of something like 14.7% over its history, but it's, you know, you're very well known for in the headlines, you know, if you type into Google, a legendary uh, short, short seller. seller. Yeah, um, and, and it is the short there's side. There's a first problem, which is do as I say, not as I do, right? In that if you're going to do this at home or you're thinking about how you should invest a large pile of money, the ultimate answer about how you should invest a large pile of money is you should invest it in good businesses that are going to be there in five years and 10 years and 15 years and 20 years and are still spitting out cash. And they have to ask, answer the question, are they bigger and better in five years or 10 years? And by and large, that's what we want to do. We do it with a twist. And the twist is that we offset some of our, our positions by short by short selling things that you wouldn't want to own. Now, it's sort of iconic that somebody inherits a bunch of money and they start and they get some hot stock tips and they wind up investing in this gold stock and this technology stock and this video stock and they all go to zero. I can't tell you how many times I've seen an overhormoned 28-year-old inherit money and lose it all. And in fact, they're not losing it all because of bad investments. They're losing it all because they're defrauded. But they don't realize this. That hot stock tip for a gold mine, the gold mine probably doesn't have any gold in it. And the tech stock that makes videos on demand for thousands of businesses probably doesn't make videos on demands for thousands of businesses. And that's a real example from the Australian Stock Exchange. And it claimed to be incredibly profitable, and it wasn't. And people who lost money in it didn't lose money because they had bad investments. They lost money in essentially because they were meant to lose money in it. This mm. wasn't random. Now, we have developed a process for systemizing finding these and betting against them. So we have a database of thousands and more than a thousand bad people. It's not 2,000 yet. And when those bad people turn up somewhere in the world involved in a stock, we will sh sell a tiny amount of that stock. And I mean one-fifth of one percent of our funds. If the stock triples, it doesn't worry us. If the stock goes to zero, it makes one-fifth of one percent difference to the portfolio. In aggregate, we do this over hundreds of shares. In the life of the fund, we've done it over, in the life of Bronte, we've done it over 900 different shares. And the life of Bronte is quite a lot longer than the life of the fund. Um, and 
in that period we've made a profit doing it. Now that doesn't sound like we've only made a little bit of a profit, but it's very nice. And the reason it's very nice is that every time the market goes up, we've managed to be more than, we're about 130% of the fund long. Mm -hmm. And we don't have the risk of margin calls because if the market goes down a lot, all of these crappy stocks are going to give us a bunch of cash. And the purpose of this is that we want to take that bunch of cash given by crappy stocks and invest it back into good ones. So what, we're do, what we are is a, the, the short book is a way of producing leverage on the long book without the risks of leverage. We would like, you know, we own all these great businesses. We'd like to own more of them. But if you lever up to buy things, you can turn a good business into a bad business by, by debt. Right? Because, and you know, liquor and leverage are good ways of losing money. We are able to have 130% long without the downside risk because we have this vast short book which delivers us cash. And let's talk about how it works in an ideal world. In an ideal world, every time the stock market goes down, these shorts give us some cash, we buy good companies. When the market goes back up again, we keep shorting more as we've managed to demonstrate that we've done this without losing money, mm -hmm. right? Then this allows us protection for the next downside cycle. Then hopefully they'll give us more cash and we'll own more good businesses. But we have this short book which has astonishingly good results, but it doesn't really exist to make money on its own. It exists to fund us to buy more good quality companies. How much of that sort of 14.7 return is due to the short and how much is it due to the long? Ah, it's almost all due to the long. If I, I'm sorry, I'm going to give you the numbers in US dollars going back to 2008 when we start, 2009 when we started. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm going to do it since 2009 is that they're the numbers I have in my head. I don't think in US Australian dollars. I've got the Australian dollar numbers in my pocket just so that if I count, quote them, I'm not misquoting them, but I actually had to look them up. Mm -hmm. The, in that time, we've run a short book, which is about 70% of the portfolio. And cumulatively, in a decade, almost a decade, we've made about 22% of the fund in profit. And the fund is up a couple of hundred percent. And that's roughly 2% a year. I don't get out of bed for 2% a year. Right? So in one sense, you know... 10% of the return over that time has been made by the short book. But that's not the right way to think about it. The right way to think about it is, firstly, we've been allowed to be more than 100% long without the risk of being more than 100% long. And so all that extra return we've got by being slightly levered to the upside has come from the short book. The second thing is that there's been a couple of volatility events, like in 2011 the market went down briefly. But we made a lot of money on the short book in 2011. If you look in US dollars, we were up 50% in the first half of 2011. Most of that money went into longs. A surprising amount of it actually went into Google. Now, did we make the money on the short book or did we make the money on Google? The answer is I think we made it on the short book. Right? because it wouldn't have been there to invest when the market went down. Mm -hmm. So cumulatively, you know, we've made excess returns. If you look at them mathematically, we've made them all on the long book. But if you look at 
why we get the excess returns on the long book, it's because we have a short book. Because of the short. Now, if you tried to short in a vacuum, I promise you, you will lose money. Right? It's, I think it's impossible to run a straight short book. But a short book combined with a long book produces a very nice strategy. What it produces is a, a source of cash that we use to buy good quality businesses whenever the market's weak. Changing tack a little bit here, and, and you know, I, I look back at your blog and I can see that in August you've, you've started to become, you know, there's, there's three times the volume to what there was earlier in the year. And um, I guess my question is really around shareholder activism and what role you think that has to play and where you see this legislative piece, uh, piece in terms of um, people like Glaucus or otherwise coming to the market on Blue Sky or otherwise. Look. Shareholder, shareholder activism on the long side is not a game that we're equipped to play. Firstly, if you want to play it, you need a lot of money to swing around. And we are a size-limited fund. We've stopped taking new clients. And we're quite big and profitable, but we're not going to be a Bill Ackman or a Dan Loeb with $20 billion we can swing around. I wish most of those shareholder activists well, I'm never going to be one. On the short side, there are frauds that have been frauds for five years, 10 years, 15 years, and have never blown up. We know companies that have cumulatively raised and destroyed a billion dollars. And they didn't raise and destroy it, they raised a billion dollars and paid it to their mates. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Now, every now and again, somebody comes in and calls a spade a bloody shovel. And if they're right, it tends to come out over time. Um, to pick a local example, Glaucus came in and they said horrible things about um, that sandalwood farmer, Quintus. Quintus. And it turns out almost all those horrible things were correct and Quintus went to zero. Quintus had been raising money from retail financial planners to invest in worthless, um, worthless sandalwood plantations. And every one of those dollars that they raised was basically either wasted or stolen. Mostly wasted in that case. Right? That shareholder activist, dare I say it, did Australia a really big favour. And the really big favour was that it stopped this scandalous waste of money by a, an entity with corrupt accounts. Then they came and did the same thing with Blue Sky. And Blue Sky hasn't played out totally, but since then the Blue Sky directors have resigned, the um, funds have been revalued, certain funds were tur turned out to be slightly misstated. In other words, it looks like the Glaucus people were mostly fundamentally right again. And again, this was an organisation that was raising large amounts of retail money in Australia and mostly torching it. So again, I would argue that they did a good thing for Australia. There are some deep... So you're saying this is a healthy part of the investment environment? It's a healthy part of the market, but there are some deep difficulties in doing it. Um, it's fairly easy to do in America. And most of the tradition of activist short selling is in America. And the reason it's easy to do is that it's protected by free speech in the US Constitution and this has actually been to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has a specific decision um, on what's allowed to be said by a short seller, and most of it is allowed to be said by a short seller, and mm -hmm. 
hence you can just do it. In Australia, it helps to be Glaucus. Glaucus are not Australian, they're American. So they're outside our jurisdiction. They're outside our jurisdiction, and the issue, you know, if they were set hit with a defamation writ, right, which they probably would be, the American courts would look at it and say that's not defamation under American law, and they wouldn't even pass the, Ameri the writ on to them. So Glaucus, you know, but I couldn't do what Glaucus does here. I know in Australia some very large frauds, and I can't say a thing about them. And you can ask me all you like, and I'm not going to say a thing about no, them. No, that's okay. Right? I'll and save the trouble. the reason I'm not going to say a thing about them is that I'm subject to defamation law. Germany is even worse. In Germany, it's a criminal offence to get on CNBC and talk up a stock. So if you happen to own Bayer... On the buy side. On the buy side. If you happen to own Bayer, and I do, and it's $80, and you told people you thought it was worth 130 and I do... That's technically a criminal offence. So I've just committed a criminal offence in Germany. Now, to my knowledge, nobody has ever been prosecuted for saying that a company should go up. But in Germany, strangely enough, the symmetrical side isn't treated that way. So people have actually been... Pro if I thought Bayer was worth $40, which I don't, yes. and I got on CNBC and said, you should all short it now because it's only worth $40, and the stock went down $5, I would be charged criminally for stock manipulation. Not civil, criminal. So people go to jail for it. Now, shareholder activism, as I've explained, I think is fairly healthy on the short side. But you can't do it. Right? So... I mean, I think it's going to be a feature of Australia, and the reason I think it's going to be a feature of Australia is that the Americans have worked out that A, there are a fair few frauds in our market, and B, that they have a unique advantage, being their First Amendment, that allows them to come and hit Australian frauds. And they're outside our jurisdiction. And then jurisdiction. they're outside our jurisdiction. Now, I think that's going to happen again and again and again. So a few gold mining type of operations would be yeah, likely and, targets. You know, I, I'm even very nervous about talking to these guys because I figure that at some stage or other they might, you know, some people have thought that I was the person that provided the idea to Glaucus on Blue Sky. Mm -hmm. The answer is no, I wasn't. I'd never talked to Glaucus on Blue Sky. I actually had Blue Sky as a as mark, marked as a position. We didn't have very much, right? It's an annoyance right? Because I sort of knew it was there. The problem is I knew it was there before it went up sixfold. So I'm kind of glad we didn't have very much as a position. Yeah, it can be but costly to be it right. Can be, it can be costly to be right. And, you know, one of the advantages of this shareholder activism on the short side is that you create your own catalyst. And so it's not, you know, that costly to be right. Now, I mean, it's well known that I'm friends with several of these people. Um, the most successful in the world is a guy there's a, a um, short fund, short seller that calls itself Gotham City Partners, or Gotham City, and it's run by a guy who is extremely secretive, so I'm not even going to mention his name, but he um, lives his life with the press entirely in Batman quotes, right? He, and, and, and he cloaks himself as this sort of cloaked, cloaked crusader against corporate evil, but in fact, to give him his due, you know, his biggest hit was a company in Spain called Gowix. And Gowix was a company that that sold Wi-Fi hotspots. So if you were somewhere, you could sign up to their Wi-Fi hotspot and you'd earn, you know, you'd pay them a little bit for the use of their hotspot. It just turned out that 90% of their hotspots were fake. They didn't exist. 
and this was, and all the accounts were fake. And the Gotham guy started this by getting a little hotspot measuring piece of so software in a computer, put it in a knapsack, and walked around New York City monitoring every hotspot in New York City, just going up and down every street and every, for several days. Then he had a map of every hotspot in New York City and he could prove that most of the hotspots that they claimed in New York City didn't exist. Having done this, he presented it to the Spanish stock market and the CEO within a day basically resigns and confesses everything. I mean, is this healthy? Yeah, it's healthy, right? It's a necessary clean it's out. It's a necessary of the clean out, but you know, that's a little more aggressive than I am. Sure, sure. So you, you, you rate that person higher than you do someone like Fami Kadir, who I think that you glazed oh, with. Fami, Fami Kadir, it's impossible not to rate Fami Kadir highly. Um, Fami and I worked together on a big American company called Valiant, which was about the size of an Australian bank, one and a half times the size of an Australian bank. It was a giant pharmaceutical company, and it was in the business of ripping people off, and it didn't matter whether it was ripping off American insurance companies, American um, consumers or stockholders, but it was ripping people off. And we spent a lot of time trying to work out how it was doing it. And in the process, I met several people in New York that were also deeply suspicious of Valiant. The most interesting one of these was a young woman who had sort of dropped out of a PhD in algebraic topology. Yeah, I had to look up what that was. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't. <laughs> but um, she actually knew some of my old maths professors, which is kind of an amusing story in the world too. But she dropped out of the PhD in algebraic topology and um, started looking at drug trials and working out the statistical significance of various results. Pretty obtuse mathematical way to picking pharma stocks. And then got interested in pharmaceutical fraud and then got interested in Valiant. And she'd worked about two-thirds of it out and almost all of the drug efficacy data, which I'd know nothing about. And I... Because I'm an accounting junkie, I'd worked out how the accounts were fake. And so, as a, you know, she's much better at drugs and I'm much better at accounting and we worked together on it. And eventually we, we created enough noise that it resulted in the collapse of this um, $90 billion pharma company. Eventually it resulted in US congressional hearings, at which I get a Guernsey, but Farmy doesn't. Mainly because I was louder than Farmy. And... Um, Finally, the great honour was that they made a Netflix documentary about crimes on Wall Street and Farmy and I turn out to be the good guys. Episode 3. Episode 3 of this and, thing and called Dirty Money. There's a and scene, it was just a lot of fun doing it. There's a scene in that which I think describes, and this might not be right, but when I look online, a lot of things online is not right, but it says that you retired at 39. So one of my questions was going to be why you do it, but they cut to you in that and you have a smile that I see... <laughs> With it's almost an Look, uh -huh. it was fun, right? I mean, well, you enjoy the, you yeah. enjoy this business though. This That's why what, you do it. This right? is what was happening. Which, yeah, I mean, this is a business where you get to learn a lot about what goes on in the world. And I wound up doing this business for nothing. I was essentially lying on a couch and spending eight hours a day trying to work out the financial markets. Yes, and I started writing a blog. And I thought, this is absurd. I mean, I'm doing it, and I might as well sell the service. And so we opened a fund. And there was no reason we opened a fund other than that I was doing what I loved anyway. There were several problems with this. The first one is I never hired a sales guy. Right? And 
So we opened the fund and we had astonishingly good numbers and we didn't even bother marketing them to Australia. So that 50% we made in the first half of 2011, the only people that got that were a few American clients who read my blog. Right? They're very happy with me. Right? There's an Italian guy who got it too. He was kind of, right? But there wasn't a single Australian client for that. And eventually, so eventually, just through word of mouth, we got to managing sort of $150 million. And then I hired a sales guy and very suddenly we were managing more like $700 Australian million. And we've closed the fund because to run more money at the moment would either impinge my happiness or pin, impinge the returns. I haven't worked out which one. We, we're trying to work out how we scale our database of bad people so that we can run twice as much money or three times as much money, but I'm not going to open the fund again until I'm sure that it A, doesn't impinge my happiness, and B, doesn't impinge the returns. And I, it's an odd position to go to where, because I mean, if I wanted to get rich, I'd just open the fund and let the floodgates come in. But that's not the goal. The goal here is to manage money sensibly, learn a lot about the world, and have a good time doing it. John, that's a fantastic way to conclude the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us Inside the Rope. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.